as was already mentioned by Brother Ted in the announcements, as well as some uh, other comments made prior to the services, how blessed we are this morning to be able to come together on an occasion like this one. As God has so richly granted to us the capability in health and in character of mind and in a desire to be present at the house of the Lord on this day, to appreciate with all the saints the great things and the holiness that he has revealed to us and the grandeur of his will. During the Bible study hour this morning, we touched upon exactly the lesson that shall stand before us this morning as well. But I believe a greater consideration and in fact a more thorough appreciation of it will do each of us a great deal of wonderful good as we ask and attempt to answer one of the most profound questions that could ever be uttered from the lips of a human being. That great question is, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? What is the grand objective to be accomplished by my existence and presence upon this earth? Many different ways in which a question like that might well be answered. I would submit to you, though, that as one considers the variety of answers that may well be given, how much of them is related to the identicalness of truth, and how much of them would present to us the firmness of the character of what God has revealed. For after all, to answer this question to me, yes, to have reached the end of one's sojourn upon earth and have believed in an answer that was in fact not the correct one, it would be eternally disastrous. It would in fact be eternally of great regret and certainly of great difficulty and indeed. To lead us toward that discussion this morning, I would ask that you think with me by way of introduction some possible answers that might well be given. What's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of your life? What about a given answer that someone may select to give to that, in answer to that question? No doubt every thinking person who considers that question might well have some aspect of his or her life that they would be more than happy to share. Here are some possibilities that you may think of. First of all, if you were to ask that politician, what is the grand objective of your existence? Why are you here? To what great meaning do you attach to your life? That person may, no doubt, in a great sense of pride, respond, I feel that by my life I'm able to accomplish the defense of that which is truthful in regard to government and that which is of law, and thus I attempt to make a better society where individuals are happier and where they are able to live day by day in a walk and in a way that is more noble and better for them. To that we might ask, is that the right answer? Does that politician have it right in the sense of the answer he may well have given? It is still the case that no matter the greatness of one's intent to protect and preserve the law of the land, there still will be those who break the law. There still will be those who have little interest in the maintenance of law. It is in fact to them that Paul addressed those grand remarks in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, when he said the law is given to punish the breakers of that law. The ancient Greek society tried that perspective, did it not? Where they made such great emphasis upon law, and yet the Greek society crumbled. May we quickly say that alone apparently does not provide the fullness and recognition of the purpose of life, the maintenance of civil law. But what about, for instance, that person that would be an educator? Many of us have great respect and admiration for those who devote their life to the education, to the dispensing of knowledge and perhaps wisdom to others. 
And there's no question that there's a great nobility in that. But may we ask, is that the purpose of life? We notice there are, are, there are many who have little interest in learning. There are some students and even adults as well who have little desire, it would seem, to learn. And what's more, even if one had a classroom full of those that were more than eager to learn, does that still provide the impetus, the meaning, the purpose of life? May we suggest that those who are in the medical profession, again, deserve great respect in many ways. In their interest to preserve and protect life in terms of the human body, to keep the various organs functioning as best as possible for as long as possible? But might we ask, have they been able to overcome death? Death is still that appointment that we must keep, isn't it? Despite the efforts of medical science, they have not been able to do away with death, nor shall they ever be. For as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27, wasn't it in fact the psalmist who declared so long ago that the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their continuance labor and sorrow, for we must pass away. Psalm 90 verse 10. To remind us of these things, it would seem that so far the answers, though positive and good, they are not the answers to these questions. You could also list with me those who are scientists or engineers to be able to construct and build something that society could use for perhaps decades into the future or maybe to discover some principle that may well come to be very significant for centuries down the road. Maybe we should always quickly remember that these matters to which we may turn are not giving us the answers to the purpose of life. All these matters that we're listing quickly could be extended many times over. The farmer who grows things that we consume by way of our food, others who work in factories that make the clothes that we wear, those very powerful individuals who serve as firefighters and policemen, the list could go on. What is the purpose of life? To list all of these leads me to direct your attention to some other thoughts that perhaps make the situation seem even bleaker. So far as we have sought an answer, we have found none. But did you notice that so far all of them have attended to the professions that a person might occupy? Is there a desire and is there some objective that stands higher than any profession, no matter what it is? I'd submit to you that the preacher of the long ago helped us remember some very pertinent matters. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that great wise man at that point in his life named Solomon, he so powerfully affirmed for us in verse number 4, the fullness of how that things in this world seem to be cyclical. What has been is that which is, and that which is is that which shall be, verse 9 of that chapter. That seems to make my existence and yours independent per se of what occupation. Just as there were scientists in days past, there are scientists now. If the world shall stand, there shall be scientists tomorrow. Purpose in my life is not attached to the occupation that I uphold, the occupation that I occupy. That, song, that same writer stated for us a number of times in that book how that those things seem to be attached to vexation of life. 
vanity and vexation of life. May I submit to you this morning, have you and I often reflected, what's the purpose of my life? From the cradle to the grave during that intervening set of years, why am I here? Is the lasting imprint and effect thereof in accordance to what its main objective was or not? Isn't it one of the saddest of all things imaginable to think about the sojourn of life upon earth having lived that 70, 80 years, maybe more, and have missed the whole objective and the purpose that we had in mind for it? For if that objective has been missed, if that has been lost, then what productivity, what grand reason could have been stated for having achieved the goal that was missed? Today, one of the greatest things you and I can do thus is appreciate the purpose of my life and yours and strive to so live in a way to satisfy that objective, to meet that purpose and to examine such things as to make its accomplishment not only a possibility but an absolute certainty. I'd ask you over the next few moments to proceed on a journey with me as we, look, as we open the pages of the Word of God. For in fact, the very opening statement on this next slide points, puts the matter, I hope, in proper perspective. The owner's manual to the human being is the Holy Scriptures. I cannot go to a textbook at Tennessee Tech University. I cannot pursue the matters of great judicial law books in some lawyer's office in Nashville. I cannot even go to the Supreme Court of the United States and beg their wisdom and answer the purpose of my life. For we shall readily find that as long as they seek their answer in any other place other than this one, any advice, at least in answer to that question, is worthless. What does God say about the purpose of life? May we first recollect the greatness of Psalm 19, beginning in verse number 7. I'd ask you to read with me verses 7 through 11 of Psalm chapter 19. As these passages and these verses describe for us an element of the greatness of God's Word, let us listen to the aspects and adjectives that are used to describe it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Did you note with me that the enlightening of the eyes, the opening and providing the proper perspective on life is found in the statutes, commandments, laws, ordinances, and judgments to be found in the Word of God and nowhere else. Thus it is within this book that we find that answer to the grandest of questions in regard to the purpose of life. Notice that God's Word endures. One of the statements therein found in Isaiah 40, verse 8, 1 Peter 1, verse 25, magnify that same concept. Thus, as we open this Word, may we find in it the direction for life. What it is that I should be doing, regardless of profession, to employ those talents and those skills that God has bequeathed to me in such a way that He finds pleasing and that He finds noble and honorable. 
again, the scriptures stand above any profession. In that they attach, and in fact, they direct all of them. Could we not, in fact, note in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there that remarkable statement about parenthood in which, in fact, parents are to guide and direct their children. But notice, it is not in direction of profession. A mother or a father may give wonderful advice in regard to the profession that a child may pursue to make a livelihood for himself or herself and their families. But notice there the critical element provided to those Jewish fathers, those of the ancient day, was when you rise up and when you sit down, when you rest in your house and when you're working, you implant the thoroughness of the Word of God in the mind of those children so that they will come to know their purpose in life is related to a God in heaven, not to a boss at work, not to a neighbor nearby, not even to the civil laws of the land. Those other matters now, not to say they're unimportant, but they do not provide the purpose of life. Furthermore, what is it Jesus taught in regard to possessions and wealth? Isn't it true that you and I, especially in this blessed land in which we live, see so many who seem to attach meaning, purpose, to their life in terms of what they own? how much of it, the extent of it, the number of possessions, the largeness of the bank account, the size of the house, the number of promotions that they've been blessed to enjoy at work, and on and on that list might well be extended. But Jesus forever taught, did he not? In Luke, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 15, there was a gentleman who came to the Savior and asked him about the role of judgment. Jesus quickly responded in verse 15, for he said, Take heed unto yourselves, for indeed a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And at that point he began to relate a rather powerful and memorable record. He spoke about a man who had been blessed with richness. His crops brought forth so much the barns were not able to hold it. That man made a decision. He decided to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and then to store away all that his crops had produced and in so doing, in that storage, his own statement was this, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice the man's perspective seemed to be exactly in line with what so often is appreciated in the world in which we live. Look out for myself in that, make proper preparation, proper storage. But God's viewpoint was 180 degrees different, wasn't it? In fact, in response, God said, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee, and then who shall these things be? Notice that God recognized very firmly and teaches us still the meaning and purpose of that man's life was not in what the crops brought forth. In fact, God said there's a far higher objective that you have forgotten about completely. Tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. Have you given any thought to your soul? Have you given any earnest attention to the welfare of your soul? In Luke, the 16th chapter, that similar lesson is taught to us in graphic tones there. There we read about a rich man and Lazarus in the form of a parable. As that parable is unfolded before our very eyes, we note that there's a man who is rich, so much so that he's clothed in fineness and his table is filled day by day with sumptuous things. 
On the other hand, there was a man who was sufficiently destitute and poor that it's as though he would even have desired the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. And yet, they both died. Note, the medical profession had not been able to preserve life indefinitely for either one. They each died. Might we now ask, were not the tables turned, if you will, following the point of death? For whereas the rich man had enjoyed marvelous comfort upon earth, he now found himself in torment. And whereas Lazarus had been so destitute upon earth, he now was in the very bosom of Abraham. Thus it would seem we must never look only for the purpose in life to what we see in this material world before us. According to our Savior, the purpose is to be found not in possessions, not in wealth, but rather in something that transcends that. It's indeed a wealth, but it's not physical. The Bible has much more that you and I can, in fact, say. Would you think with me on some of these other points as well? The very text that we looked at this morning was read before us from the closing chapter of Ecclesiastes. Points out the fact so clearly that we would do well to reflect upon it yet again. If you would, think with me a little bit about the character of a, the man named Solomon. Solomon, of course, was born in such a way that he had a tremendous start to his life. He was the son of a king. David was his father. David was that chosen one to be the second king of Israel. And thus, Solomon was born in a palace, if you will. He was born in richness and fineness with all the things available to him that one could hope physically to attain. In fact, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 through 11, we shall not read the fullness of that, but I would encourage you to do that if you'd like at some point this week. Solomon, if I may paraphrase some of the elements of that list, makes this note. I withheld nothing from, my, from me that my eyes desired. If I wanted it, I bought it. I had it obtained somehow. I had men servants and maid servants as many as I desired. I had pools of water and nice sculptures in my garden as fancy as I may have wanted. In fact, I had sufficient wealth that in fact it was said in Second Chronicles chapter 1 that silver was like rocks in Jerusalem when Solomon was king. This man had it all. But yet in verse 11 of that chapter, as he reached the conclusion in terms of his physical wealth, he said, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The purpose in Solomon's life was not found in that wealth, in those possessions, in the influence that he had, not even in the physical wisdom that he enjoyed. And we might remember that he was the wisest human to ever have lived. For after all, he prayed to God for an understanding heart in 1 Kings 3, and God granted it. But Solomon did not find the meaning of his life in any of that. And he leads us on a rather remarkable journey through 12 chapters in that book of Ecclesiastes. And ultimately, as he thus states the conclusion of the whole matter, he says, Friend, this is it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, it might be of note to point out that the word duty is really not in the original Hebrew language. And with that being said, the verse actually reads, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. The entire reason for His purpose and objective 
the purpose of his existence upon this earth, in all of its character and grandeur, the wholeness to be seen in it, not in profession, not in wealth, not in occupation, in fearing God and obeying him. That boils it down rather dramatically, doesn't it? This person that's a doctor and an educator and a policeman and an engineer and a scientist, all may well be useful careers and important for the maintenance of society. But certainly we can hope and pray that they do not base the purpose of their life on their career. For notice that Solomon said, fearing God and keeping his commandments is it. As you and I think about the nature of that statement, so many things are not found in it. There's not wealth and possessions and entertainment and recreation. Not to say that any of that inherently by itself is wrong or sinful. But if you and I go to that point of making that the sole hub around which our life revolves, if we make that the axle around which the spokes are turning, we have erred significantly from the truth. For we must fear God and keep His commandments. That is the whole duty in life. Jesus, in fact, had much to say himself about this very idea. The Son of God left the portals of heaven, and he came here, of course, to sojourn among men to show toward us the love of God toward the human family. But in the character of that love, he taught so boldly, he taught so directly. And we ought not think that the society of today is inherently any different than it was then. There still were those who loved money and still those who loved their occupations. In that very situation, our Savior taught in Mark the 8th chapter, near the close of it in verses 36 and 37, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Notice that on that occasion, our Savior rather directly taught, that one soul is worth more than the entirety that this world has to offer and all of its wealth. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Today it does help us see very potently and rather powerfully that the time of our own demise will come. If the earth shall stand, you and I shall die. There shall come a time we shall stand before God at judgment. When you and I consider that the books will be opened and our life will be judged in comparison to what the Holy Scriptures have taught, we can easily see that that judgment will be based on how we satisfied the purpose for which we were created. In, in Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, one of the dramatic statements there made by God concerning the king of Tyre was that his purpose was for the glorification of God and the same was true of the Israelites in Isaiah 43, 7. And the same is true of you and me today. The purpose of my life and yours is to fear God and keep His commandments. And in this present age, that is, very carefully and specifically, to glorify God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If we fail to do that, we've missed everything. If we fail to do that, we have missed the entirety of the purpose for which we were made and the purpose for which God allowed us to exist. These thoughts that I list for you on that sheet, of course, of course, points us toward the judgment. You and I will consider that there shall be a day when every one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, these rather sobering words of reflection, for we must 
all stand before the judgment seat of God. No, we all shall stand there. And in so doing, we shall give an account for the deeds done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or evil. On that day of judgment then, without question, the major purpose of life will be the matter against which our life will be judged. Have I satisfied the purpose that God had in mind for me, or have I failed? Have I not done that which was my duty to do? If it is the former, oh, how blessed we shall be. If it is the latter, oh, how regretful we shall be. All the matters of riches and wealth will come to naught on that occasion. We noticed that last Lord's Day evening in Revelation 18, verse 17. For in that day, the riches shall come to naught in a moment. For in one great hour, all riches are brought to naught. In addition to that thought, might we even list the Apostle Paul as a dramatic example of the very one who had tuned his life to the frequency of God. Paul, of course, had become a Christian as he responded to the commandments of Ananias in the city of Damascus. And as he became that Christian, some texts remind us of what Paul forfeited when he became a Christian. Paul himself admitted in Galatians chapter 1 as well as 1 Timothy 1 that he had great position and prestige and power. Apparently, from Acts 26, even the Sanhedrin court desired his perspective on the punishment of Christians. He stated in Galatians 1, he had risen above many his equals. Here was a man who had everything physically in life ahead of him, and yet what was his own decision? Paul said, yea, doubtless. Philippians 3.8, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul, what was your previous life without Christ worth? Nothing. He said, I gave that up in a heartbeat because I knew that much like dung, that is refuse or waste, without Christ I had and was nothing but with him I have the grandeur and blessing of the very hope of heaven and the promise of His being with me. May you and I be much like Paul in that regard, to appreciate that without Christ, you and I have nothing. Did He not Himself say in John 15, Without me ye can do nothing? John 15, verses 4 and 5. Oh, how we need to rely upon Him, base our life upon Him appreciate Him in the regards of the decisions that we make, and then our life will be moving toward the purpose for which God intended it, and that we might in fact be a blessing not only to ourselves, but to the others round about us. To think about life's purpose, to think about the character of perhaps a summary statement of our lesson today, there may be many who think that the purpose in life may be found in feelings or emotions, what they perhaps can appreciate within them, but it isn't so. We might again note, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. There may be others who think that hard work is the crux of life. And often you and I compliment others who, in reaching the end of the way, can say he or she was a hard-working person, not slothful, not lazy. And though that's noble and commanded in Proverbs 6, the purpose of life isn't in hard work alone. What is the end for that work? What's the reasoning for it? For others, perhaps it's knowledge. 
to be able to put a degree symbol after their name, having attained height in terms of some field of expertise. Though that's not wrong in and of itself, that's not the purpose of life either. For others, perhaps it is their family. All of us would readily say how prideful we are when it comes to our children and our own family, how happily we wish to provide for them and to satisfy and to make things good on their behalf. That alone by itself isn't the purpose in life. For others, maybe it's the character of the placement that they find themselves, such as work, or the part of the world in which they live. To say all of that is to say that, again, it is not the purpose in life. Why am I here? To fear God and keep His commandments. Why are you here? To fear God and keep His commandments. If either you or I fail on that account, we've missed everything. A poet at one point made a poem that seems to drive home in other language the very ideas we've discussed this morning. That poem goes in words like this. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I cherish and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge come in when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find all that I've worked for? I've left behind. Friend, if all you're working for is going to be left here in the physical character of this earth, what you're working for is not going to help you get to heaven. For only that is that which you work ahead of time. To lay up riches in store in heaven, Jesus taught in Matthew 6. Could we summarize our lesson in rather challenging ways in words like this? It's time for each of us to make a personal response. As we think very carefully and critically, time is of the essence. I am not promised tomorrow and neither are you. What is the purpose of my life to this point in my age, whatever that age may be? Have I satisfied the purpose for which God made me? Am I a blessing to others in the way God would have me to be by virtue of the gift of His Son? Is it such that I've been washed in the blood of His Son and can now serve as a blessing for others to lead them to the character of Christ's cross? If I have not feared God and kept His commandments, and those commandments, of course, being those in the New Testament, then I have not satisfied that purpose. And I need to make a change. And I need to make a change immediately. So that from this day forward, throughout whatever number of days God may still allow me to be here, I can serve that purpose. And when in reaching the end of that way, we'll be able to grandly rest my head to the point of death and rest assured that I have met the objective of what God had in mind for me. Today, do you need to respond publicly to the call of the invitation of the gospel? Jesus said again that we must believe upon him, repent of our sins, confess his great name as the Son of God, and to be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. At that point, we, having put on Christ, can live faithfully until death, and in so doing, can be a dramatic ambassador for God. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20. Are you an ambassador for him, or are you an ambassador for the enemy? We can't be in both camps. If we're in the former camp, then indeed we are serving the purpose of our life, holding high the banner of Christ and serving beneath the captain of our salvation, Hebrews chapter 10. 
if, however, you need to respond today to put your name among the list of those serving on the Lord's side, we'd be happy to aid you in that obedience and response. If you've become a Christian, but you have allowed the purpose in life to be deflected in that you have chosen a different path, gone a different route, make a U-turn on that road and proceed at once to again follow the way of Jesus, knowing that therein is the purpose in your life. If we could be of assistance to you today in your obedience, we'd be honored and happy to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.